Hello. My name is Byron Johnson, and it's a pleasure to kick off this last session in this great uh, two-day conference. To this last session is called The Clash of Faith and Secularism in America, and it's my pleasure to introduce John Giulio. Now, John's no stranger to a lot of you here in this room. He was here at Princeton for 13 years. He left Princeton about five years ago to come to the University of Pennsylvania to launch something called the Center for Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society. And he's also the Frederick Fox Leadership Professor of Religion and Politics and Civil Society at Penn. Now, shortly after John arrived at Penn, he recruited me. I left Vanderbilt to come join him to build this center. And about the time I get to town, John goes to Washington, <laughs> where he joined the Bush administration for about eight grueling months, which was really... Um, for those of you that don't know, the real story, kind of a tour of duty for John. He and I were just a little too young for Vietnam, and I think he felt like he owed it to the country to go serve for a few months. But I did want to tell you just a, a couple of tidbits that most people don't know about John Delio, and especially that middle initial J. Now, John is someone, to know him is to love him, and uh, my family, not just my family that's here today, but my parents and my brothers and sisters, I come from a big family, seven kids, have fallen in love with the Delio family, and especially John. And John once said to me, you know, Byron, um, I wouldn't be opposed to being adopted by your family. <laughs> and my brother just happens to be an attorney. <laughs> so he did the legal work, drew up the papers, the family met, they all voted, they agreed. So John was adopted by the Johnson family, and he has changed his name. So it's John Johnson Giulio. <laughs> but most people know of John because of his great intellect, and he is, you know, truly the smartest person I've ever met. But he is clearly, he has the biggest heart I've ever met. Uh, one of the most generous uh, people, uh, loyal people you'll ever, ever have a chance to, to, to know. And it's just been a treat to work with him these last few uh, years at Penn. And for those of you that don't know, I left Penn about four weeks ago to come up to work with Robbie here at Princeton. And, you know, there were these rumors flying around that John and I had had a falling out. And uh, so I want to set the record straight, and he probably will too when he gets up here. We have not had a falling out. Uh, he's, he's my adoptive brother, for crying out loud. And um, I was at Harvard last week for a meeting, and everyone was shocked when they heard this news. And they said, how could, you, how could you leave Penn? How could you leave John? You're his right arm. And someone else said, and his lungs, too. <laughs> but um, I have had many people say over the last four years or so that, boy, you are really John Delio's right arm. And really, that is such a high compliment, John. So it's my pleasure to introduce John Delio. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Johnson. <laughs> it's a very, very sweet and generous introduction and uh, memorable. Thank you. I'm very grateful uh, to the conference co-sponsors for inviting me here today. Very grateful to all of you for being here. It's a Saturday afternoon. Uh, I think there's a football game on. Uh, the birds are chirping outside. They'll, they'll, they'll keep it down while we're here, I guess. 
And uh, it's an honor for me to share this concluding session of this conference with Professor Jenkins, whose, whose work on uh, religion's global march and on Catholicism in America and related subjects uh, is truly remarkable and deeply to be admired. So it's an honor to share uh, this uh, session with you. And frankly, I am far more interested in hearing what Professor Jenkins has to say than I am in hearing what I have to say. Um, so I will say what I have to say and uh, then uh, make way. Uh, uh, I like to make the joke that uh, having been at Princeton 13 years, a few years at Harvard before that, and, and then five years now at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, I've become a true Ivy League professor, meaning I could speak for 10 minutes or two hours on any subject without any essential change in content. Uh, so, uh, but I, I will try to be merciful. That's one of the great religious virtues. Um, let me begin, however, by expressing my thanks to the conference uh, co-organizers, co-sponsors, the uh, three of them, or the three wise men, as I prefer to call them. I spent over a decade uh, here, as I say, with uh, Professor George, uh, I relish every opportunity to renew personal and professional fellowship with him. Uh, he holds what is widely regarded as one of the, if not the most distinguished chair at this world-renowned university, uh, but there is no chair, uh, no academic distinction, period, uh, that would uh, be too great for this superb scholar and godly good man. Um, there are those, I should note for the record, who charge Professor George with having corrupted me. Um, having uh, encouraged my turn to religion in the mid-1990s. I want to say for the record that Professor George is guilty as charged, <laughs> and God bless him for it. The uh, Providence Forum's Pastor Peter Lilbach has been a driving force in getting suburban churches to partner with urban churches uh, in serving inner-city children, youth, and families. He has also worked very hard through the Providence Forum to remind people that whether they're people of faith or a particular faith or no particular faith at all, that from the Liberty Bell inscribed with Leviticus to the Great Seal and the Eye of Providence thereon, we can and should freely and fairly debate, but we cannot intelligently or reasonably deny the sacred roots of so many of this country's most important symbols and major civic institutions. And besides that, who else would invite a Roman Catholic, namely me, uh, to preach at a Presbyterian church, namely his, on Reformation Sunday, 2001, no less. Um, <laughs> fortunately, his congregation did not rebel, and my cardinal did not excommunicate. Uh, but I think we are still awaiting word on whether Martin Luther has stopped spinning in his grave. Um, and then last but not least, my dear friend Byron Johnson. He is, uh, for sure, one of the country's leading social science scholars of spiritual transformation and social transformation, which in turn is one of the most analytically complicated and difficult and important subjects that empirical researchers have turned to, I believe, in the past 50 years. His criminological research, not only on the faith factor, so-called, but also on domestic violence and other subjects, is widely regarded and rightly regarded as must-reading. Uh, the three and a half years we spent together in Philadelphia uh, with my eight months off on parole in uh, the White House uh, were blessed in so many uh, ways. And so Penn's recent loss has been the Witherspoon Institutes and the Madison programs and Baylor University, where he's a visiting professor as well, their enormous gain. But I look forward uh, to many years of friendship and fellowship and collaboration with him, as many as God will grant. And speaking of God, see, I got to the point. Uh, as my good friend, uh, the great Washington Post uh, columnist, syndicated columnist E.J. Uh, Dion and I phrased it a few years ago uh, as a title to a Brookings Institution volume we co-edited. I guess the question behind 
of today's uh, uh, topic, the clash of faith and secularism in America and the world. I'm doing the America part for now. Uh, is the question, what's God got to do with the American experiment? What has God got to do with the American experiment? How one answers this question must largely determine how one thinks about the clash of faith and secularism uh, in the United States today, a clash which, as I will suggest uh, in due course, secularism continues to get, I think, by far the worst of it, suffering numerous intellectual cuts, social hemorrhages, and civic bruises. By every measure, as we know from work by the great George Gallup and others, America remains one of the most religious countries in the world. The average American is far more likely, for example, than the average European uh, to believe in God. Vast majorities of Americans, led in most categories by African Americans, uh, believe in God, uh, say they have a personal relationship with God, never say they never doubt God's existence, pray daily, and think religion can solve all or most of today's problems. Even American teenagers remain quite religious, with over 9 in 10 saying that they believe in God and believe God loves them, and uh, parents and teachers and educators take heed, uh, over 6 in 10 saying that they have, quote, a great deal of interest in discussing God. And as our, uh, my Penn colleague Ram Kanan, social work professor at Penn, has documented, in America's poorest urban communities, religion remains a very much a vital force, with urban congregations averaging about $140,000 a year worth of volunteer support and providing about 5,000 volunteer hours a year. Still, what has God got to do with the American experiment? Uh, as EJ and I suggested, one could imagine this question provoking two legions to mass, or as I would say here today, to clash against each other. They'd offer sharply different accounts of the role religion and God has played in creating and nurturing the American experiment. In one view, it is America's pluralistic and secular constitution that has promoted freedom, diversity, and oddly, the very strength of America's religious communities. A state independent of organized religion, in this view, has been freedom's and religion's finest friend. Was not a central motivation for the creation of free and tolerant institutions a desire to end wars over God and religion. So that's the one view. But on the other account, freedom itself is seen as rooted in a theistic, many would say Judeo-Christian, commitment to the inviolable dignity of the individual human being. This belief arises in the words of the Declaration of Independence from the law of nature and of nature's God. A belief in God, in this view, places healthy restraints on the human tendency to deify political systems or individual political strongmen and insists that even political strongmen are accountable to, as it were, a higher authority. As E.J. and I argued in that aforementioned volume, this argument between these two views is as old as our republic, and in truth, the two views are not mutually exclusive. But speaking now only for myself, what I want to suggest here today is that while the two views are not mutually exclusive, neither are they casually compatible. Far from it. Divergent views of the role of God and organized religion in creating and nurturing American democracy have become, as it were, foot soldiers in the country's culture war, a war in which faith and secularism, or if one prefers orthodox faith and liberal secularism, clash intellectually, socially, and politically. As James Q. Wilson and I have observed in, in print, viewed from a Marxist perspective, much of politics in the U.S. today 
is entirely baffling. Instead of two economic classes engaged in a bitter struggle over wealth, we have two cultural classes engaged in a war over values. To say that there are two cultural classes, of course, is an oversimplification, but to say that there is a culture war in which faith and secularism skirmish rather frequently uh, is not, I think, an exaggeration. The faith-secularism culture clash differs from other political disputes, for example, disputes over, say, taxes or business regulation, in several important ways. For one thing, money is not at stake. For another, compromises are almost impossible to arrange. And most importantly of all, the conflict is more profound. It's animated by deep differences in people's beliefs about public and private morality. That is, about the standards of conduct that ought to govern individual behavior and social arrangements. It is about what kind of country we want to live in, not just what kind of policies our government ought to adopt. Evidence that this clash is real would seem to be just about everywhere. For instance, for many years now, the most explosive political issues in America have included abortion, gay rights, drug use, school prayer, pornography, and others. In several recent national elections, most people who attend worship services uh, regularly, on a regular basis, that is, once or more, uh, twice or more a week in some cases, have voted differently and at higher rates from people who are weakly attached or not attached at all uh, to traditional religious beliefs and practices. Having said that, however, having suggested the clash is real, it's important to note that rightly respected scholars differ, or, as I'll suggest in a moment, would at least in one case nearly appear to differ, over what, if anything, such evidence suggests. To cite and briefly summarize just one, I think, important and timely example, a Boston College professor, Alan Wolf, has a new book out, highly recommend it. Uh, it's entitled The Transformation of American Religion. The subtitle of the book is how we actually live our faith. Let me just quote to you uh, what its dust jacket says in part. It says, quote, gone is the language of sin and damnation. Forgotten are all the doctrinal differences that were once of burning importance. Witnessing is just another lifestyle. In short, American religion has been tamed, and God has become a friend rather than an authoritative figure. Even conservative religion has become part of the culture of narcissism, People change denominations as frequently as they change jobs, close quote. But as one reads Professor Wolf's richly textured study itself, which much like his earlier work is based largely on creative ethnographic observations and general survey data, it's clear that by American religion, what Professor Wolf is really referring to is religion as understood, organized, preached, and practiced by earlier generations of evangelical Christians epitomized in Professor Wolf's view by Reverend Jerry Falwell and his now increasingly gray-haired flock. It's also clear that Professor Wolf does, in the end, seem to think that the clash is real, so much so that 257 pages into the book, he thusly speaks to we about them. And I quote him now. Does this mean that we should conclude that religious believers are no longer hell-bent on prohibiting abortion, throwing Darwin out of public schools, denouncing homosexuals, and imposing their values on others? The answer, if, like me, you think some abortion should be legal, the theory of evolution true, gay marriage an idea worth considering, and the rights of minorities protected, is that we should not. But we should deal with them in a different way than we have. Close quote. 
Well, different how. Professor Wolf suggests three things for what he calls three strategies uh, that he believes what he labels fellow liberal secularists, as he calls them, ought to adopt. First, he says that liberal secularists ought to, and I quote, recognize that Jerry Falwell speaks for very few Christians and by extension is not a significant stand-in for people of strong faith more generally. Secondly, uh, Professor Wolf says, in clashing with the faithful, liberal secularists ought to rely less on the courts and more on what he refers to or phrases as the usual democratic venues. Understanding, he says, that when liberal secularists' differences with orthodox religious believers are argued out in election campaigns or debated on talk shows, quote, there is no necessary reason why liberal views should win, close quote. Third and finally, Professor Wolf beckons liberal secularists to understand that Americans' old-time Protestant religion has been largely transformed. That's really what the book is about. It's not so much about the transformation of American religion writ large. It's about the transformation, really, of an older brand of evangelical fundamentalist Protestantism into a kinder, gentler, more ecumenical, and better educated uh, religious uh, demographic. And I, I quote Professor Wolf one last time here. He says, and I quote, as much as evangelicals disagree with liberals, their culture that is, the evangelicals' culture, should liberals ever care to look, is one of caring and concern and increasingly one of social justice, uh, close quote. And I think there is, somebody say amen, uh, there is very good data uh, by uh, lots of scholars, including some tremendous young scholars, uh, some of whom have graced this campus, uh, such as Brad Wilcox and others, to suggest that Professor Wolf here is quite right, that when we talk about, in particular, that part of the orthodox believer community in America that identifies as evangelical Christian, we are talking about a pretty profound generational shift, not in terms of being less orthodox theologically, but in terms of being, again, more ecumenical, uh, more widely educated, uh, and so on, and also more committed to social justice. And this creates an interesting political dynamic that I want now to quickly turn to and point to uh, as I race along here. And it is this. Making fun of the moral majority was, is, or was easy. But try making fun of the fact that America's diverse faith communities, including its large and still growing communities of theologically conservative Christians and young evangelicals, are united as they have never been united before in a practical, hands-on commitment to social justice, in particular to serving for real the needy and neglected in our midst, from both at home and as well uh, abroad. All across America today, from North Central Philadelphia to South Central Los Angeles, from Boston to Austin, white evangelicals, both liberal and conservative, Latino evangelicals, black Pentecostals, Orthodox Jews, Muslims, Catholics, and, and people of other people of other faiths are working both individually and via interfaith, ecumenical, religious, secular, and public-private partnerships to lift up the least, the last, and the lost of this society, and to bring food and money and medicine uh, and hope to the sick and the dying, to the impoverished and the infected, to the displaced and the disenfranchised all over the world. Even faith-unfriendly national media now regularly say so and admit this. And so in conjunction, I would suggest, one consequential a casualty, if you will, in the contemporary clash between religious faith and secularism in America 
has been the data-free, ahistorical claim that religion is, and is somehow constitutionally required to be, a purely private affair with little or no active role or representation in the civic or public square. As every blessed empirical study shows, it is religious people and sacred places that do more than any other individuals or institutions to serve civic purposes in this country today. Here, for example, is what Harvard University professor Robert Putnam and his colleagues in the Saguaro Seminar, which is a group dedicated over several years to exploring the evidence uh, on social capital and the state of social capital in America, here is what Professor Putnam and company concluded, and I quote, Houses of worship build and sustain more social capital and social capital of more varied forms than any other type of institution in America. Churches, synagogues, mosques, and other houses of worship provide a vibrant institutional base for civic good works and a training ground for civic entrepreneurs. Roughly speaking, nearly half of America's stock of social capital is religious or religiously affiliated, whether measured by association memberships, philanthropy, or volunteering. At the same time, religious faith provides a moral foundation for civic regeneration. Faith gives meaning to community, to community service, and to goodwill, forging a spiritual connection between individual impulses and great public issues." Close quote. What this says, in even simpler terms, is that faith-motivated citizens and faith-based organizations are, in fact, America's prime public assets. They do as much as any individuals or institutions in this society to promote social progress and to ensure egalitarian civic results. Indeed, if Putnam and social science fellow travelers are to be believed, houses of worship and people of faith are America's primary repositories of social capital. Social capital, in turn, is essential to making democracy work, ergo no democracy without religion. Now, of course, George Washington knew that, uh, but until recently, uh, there were many who had persuaded themselves and others that the Constitution somehow, some way, at some point, had required or requires a strict separation between church and state. As Professor Philip Hamburger argues, I think, definitively in his 2002 Harvard University Press book entitled simply The Separation of Church and State, the constitutional authority for strict separation is, in his words, without historical foundation. What's behind this is the fact that in the 19th and early 20th centuries, virulently anti-Catholic know-nothings, united with uh, equally uh, bigoted, but perhaps more eloquent, anti-Catholic Protestant theological liberals, formed an unholy political alliance that got various church-state separation laws etched into state constitutions and passed into public laws. If you'll pardon the pun, Professor Hamburger makes mincemeat of these bigots <laughs> and of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black's hyper-disingenuous opinion in Everson, the 1947 case that enshrined the church-state separation myth. In 1952, just five years after Everson, Justice William O. Douglas, writing for a unanimous Supreme Court, correctly stated that the First Amendment can in no reasonable way be interpreted to say, and I quote Justice Douglas now, that in every and all respects there should be a separation of church and state. Rather, it is infinitely uh, more historically and constitutionally correct to say, as Douglas phrased it, and I quote, Americans are a religious people whose institutions presuppose a supreme being, close quote. While the Supreme Court today continues to wrestle with the ghost uh, of Everson, 
while it continues to wrestle, I think quite creatively and often, more often than not intelligently, with religion cases, and while Everson's ghost still haunts some misinformed minds, almost nobody who wishes to be taken seriously, uh, Justice Souter perhaps accepted, uh, either pretends any longer that the founding fathers, Jefferson and Madison included, uh, favored a so-called wall of separation between church and state, or argues that the Constitution even vaguely requires religious people to be treated as second-class citizens or prohibits religious organizations from partnering with government to achieve civic or secular purposes. As one of my favorite, prominent, uh, faith-friendly national politicians has eloquently stated, and I quote, the founders had faith in reason. I would add that they had faith in, in God, from whom ability to reason is a great gift. If government goes too far and seeks to go beyond separation from religion to outright hostility toward religion, you can end up with something like the old Soviet Union. Religious observance is a good thing for America, not a bad thing. Government works in partnership with religious institutions to promote public purposes, feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless. Faith inspires those good works, to be sure, but tax dollars are properly used to channel the energies of the faithful in a direction that helps our society as a whole. Close quote. Now, those words were spoken not by President George W. Bush, not even by Senator Joe Lieberman, but by Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton. And they were spoken by Senator Clinton on December 17, 2001, uh, at a speech she gave, I was there, so was Dr. Johnson, uh, at Abyssinian Baptist Church in New York. It takes a village, Senator Clinton believes, including the village congregations. Besides, it was the senator's husband who, in the late 1990s, signed into law the first and still the only federal statutes prohibiting government from discriminating against religious organizations that seek to compete for public funds with which to deliver social services. As surprising or disappointing as some may find Senator Clinton's words, I thought they were magnificent words, but as surprising or disappointing as some might find them, they may want to save their energy to cope with the fact that as we enter the 21st century, it is none other than the Pope, the enlightened leader of the Roman Catholic Church, who in documents like Faith and Reason defends science, reason, and truth from the deconstruction dogmatists and others among Voltaire's present-day disciples. Or they might consider a less grand but no less taxing reality, namely how scientists in many fields, led by scientists in the U.S. and Great Britain, now feel, as it were, coerced by the data to be open to traditional religious understandings, uh, to merely scratch this surface very, very briefly. In the natural sciences today, including in the physical sciences generally, uh, what John Polkinghorne has described as the dialogue between science and religion uh, has advanced substantially, really remarkably, over the last several decades. We are, as uh, Mr. Dr. Polkinghorne dramatically understates, we are here today because some five billion years ago, a star died in the throes of a supernova explosion, scattering into the environment those chemical elements necessary for life, uh, which it had made in the nuclear furnaces of its interior. But it is yet a particular kind of universe which alone is capable of producing systems of the complexity sufficient to sustain conscious life. As Dr. Polkinghorne says, any old world will not do. Now, uh, we have a, a little time left this afternoon. Was there a big banger behind the big bang? I guess we could spend a little while on that. Uh, special. Uh, was there one who, uh, who cooked the chemicals so that we carbon-based life entities? I love you all dearly. Um, 
uh, could have our cosmic moment in the sun. Well, of course, neither epistemologically nor empirically is what Dr. Polkinghorne and others like to call a super literate, super scientifically literate uh, natural theology uh, prepared or equipped to tell us. But regardless, the point is that there are today intellectual frontier regions where science and theology can, and in fact are, and in fact conceptually really must, encounter each other and do so without religion appearing to science or scientists as nothing more than silly superstition or low IQ fare. The same, I think, can be said about the biological sciences uh, generally. As Dr. Polkinghorne notes, the classical neo-Darwinian explanation of the development of life on Earth, including the rapid expansion of the hominid brain over the last few hundreds of thousands of years, has been burdened by ever more unassimilated data, sowing ever more reasonable scientific doubts that sifting and preservation uh, through the process of natural selection of the effects of, of uh, small random genetic mutations, as he puts it, uh, can, as it were, account adequately either for the mouse or for the mouse trapper. As he concludes, no reasonable person doubts that natural selection is a component in the history of life, but that it is the sole and totally adequate cause of all that has happened is simply an article of blind belief. Indeed, only in the media, he says, and in popular and polemical scientific writing, does there persist the myth of pure scientific truth confronting the darkness of obscurantist religious error. I think he's quite right, and I think you see the same in the social sciences and the biomedical sciences as well. As Dr. Johnson summarized uh, just last year in a comprehensive review of the relevant uh, social science and biomedical science literatures, there are today over 500 empirical studies, most of them published actually over the last five or six years in refereed academic journals, which suggest that the faith factor, variously measured, is associated uh, with results ranging from reductions in hypertension, depression, and suicide to lower rates of drug abuse, educational failure, non-marital uh, childbearing, and criminal behavior. Dr. Johnson has discussed these findings at several conferences, including uh, one recently at the London School of Economics. Thanks in no small measure to the work of Dr. Johnson's a frequent co-author, faith factor research pioneer, the late great uh, psychiatric research uh, scientist, Dr. David B. Larson, Dozens of top medical schools in this country today uh, offer training in the area of spirituality and health. In 1992, just three did. Today, 75 medical schools, including top 40 medical schools, uh, do so. Likewise, my Penn colleague, Dr. Martin E.P. Seligman, president of the American Psychological Association, has written affirmatively about religion's role as a mental health resiliency factor. Many other top psychologists have done the same, and as Penn postdoctoral fellow Dr. David Hodge has pointed out, uh, the agency that accredits most mental hospitals in the U.S. now requires a spiritual assessment to be conducted with all clients. And as Dr. Johnson knows, this past April, there was a landmark three-day conference held at the campus of the National Institutes of Health that explored how to integrate this growing body of scientific research on health and spirituality and so on uh, into the delivery of clinical care and of social services. Even if you look at within particular social sciences, within, for example, my own field of political science, the American Political Science Association, like the American Sociological Association, has recently formed uh, and expanded uh, religion sections. Uh, the American Academy of Religion uh, has almost doubled its membership uh, to over 9,000. 
the APSA, the Political Science Association, I believe has now the religion section 450 members and counting. So I, I say all this, again, just scratching the surface, obviously, uh, just to say that on purely intellectual and scientific grounds, in the United States, and to a lesser but significant degree in the mother country as well, uh, it has become increasingly difficult for open-minded academics to ignore religion or to take that old-time secularism seriously, uh, save perhaps as the last refuge for unthinking materialist scoundrels. <laughs> so, uh, to summarize, in the clash between faith and secularism in the United States today, most Americans remain believers, and believers remain politically significant. Liberal secularists' favorite uh, challengers in the culture wars have been succeeded by a new generation of evangelical Christians who are pro-life, pro-family, pro-poor, well-educated, difficult to demonize, and hard to defeat through free and open democratic debate. Constitutional and public law trends have largely exercised Everson and attracted a broad bipartisan coalition to the cause of welcoming people of faith into the public square and fostering public-private partnerships involving faith-based and community organizations. Expressions of public and private spirituality are being supported by a growing national awareness of religion's civic significance, both domestic and global, uh, by religion that is as a force for social good and as a necessary condition for sustaining democracy. Last but not least, faith factor science in many fields and subfields has, well, how to put it, uh, relegated simple-minded secularism and its pseudoscientific theories to a limbo of lesser intellectual significance. And that's not to mention such fields as philosophy and ethics, where Professor George, uh, most notably, uh, has beaten uh, these folks at their own game uh, by making arguments not predicated on religious precepts, but following the normal canons of rational thought and reason. Witness his 2001 opus, The Clash of Orthodoxies. But alas, how many divisions does the Pope have? That's, that's the Pope, not Professor George. I want to be uh, clear about this. <laughs> Or rather, just how confident ought one to be that the clash between faith and secularism in America today now favors or will favor religious freedom? How sure should one be that America is becoming ever more a place in which, as the clash dust settles and resettles, we will continue to promote democratic pluralism, even when that means respecting religious traditions and sensibilities, religious individuals and institutions? That we will continue to make way for multiculturalism even when the diversity means diversely orthodox Christians, Muslims, Jews, and other believers, or that we will continue to support scientific and other academic research and scholarship, even when that means having to admit that many of the stock theories of the early 20th century in the medical field, in the biological field, in the physical sciences, in the social sciences, well, uh, have a lot of fresh theorizing and explaining uh, to do. I, of course, do not know uh, for sure the answers to these questions, but of one thing I feel quite certain. God is not done with the American experiment just yet. Uh, be not afraid. Thank you. It is my pleasure in my role as the Executive Director of the Providence Forum to introduce our second keynote speaker. Uh, this particular segment is called The Clash of Faith and Secularism in America and the World. 
We've heard about the challenge that has been in the American context, and now we want to lift up our eyes beyond the American borders to the world itself. And as we do this, without intending in any way to diminish all the great work that have been done by prior speakers, we could say, in a sense, we've saved the best for last, and that the last shall be first. Uh, these two keynote speakers will require no commentators. Dr. Johnson nor myself will seek to respond, but Dr. Johnson will be fielding questions at the end while I'll go down and enjoy the discussion that will follow. But what we do want to do is to make sure you realize what an honor it is not only to have the distinguished Dr. John DiUlio with us, but his peer on the national and then international stage, Dr. Philip Jenkins. Dr. Jenkins has his Ph.D. from the University of Cambridge as well as his uh, lower degrees. He worked in the field of criminal justice for many years and then began to work in the field of religious studies. And now, from 1997 to the present, is a distinguished professor of history and religious studies at Pennsylvania State University. So we are most grateful for this scholar who's produced such epic-making works as The Making of a Ruling Class, Crime and Justice, A History of Modern Wales. Among his 18 books, we also have some of the most important books that have recently graced the stage, such as The Last Legitimate Prejudice, The Attack on Catholicism, and also a work that we're going to be hearing about now, which is his particularly important study on Christianity in the world. That book is entitled The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity. Let me just tell you what Oxford University Press has said about this epic-making work that I have seen reviewed in many magazines and newspapers in the past several months. Quote, Philip Jenkins, The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity, is the first book to take the full measure of the changing face of the Christian faith. Jenkins asserts that by the year 2050, only one Christian in five will be a non-Latino white person, and that the center of gravity of the Christian world will have shifted firmly to the southern hemisphere. Within a few decades, Kinshasa, Buenos Aires, Addis Ababa, and Manila will replace Rome, Athens, Paris, London, and New York as the focal points of the church. Moreover, Jenkins shows that the churches that have grown most rapidly in the global south are far more traditional, morally conservative, evangelical and apocalyptic than their northern uh, counterparts. Mysticism, Puritanism, belief in prophecy, faith healing, exorcism, and dream visions are concepts which more liberal Christian churches have traded in for progressive political and social concerns, are basic to the newer churches in the South. And the effects of such beliefs on global politics, Jenkins argues, will be enormous. As religious identification begins to take precedence over allegiance to secular nation-states, indeed, as Christianity grows in regions where Islam is also expected to increase, as recent conflicts in Indonesia, Nigeria, and the Philippines reveal, we may see a return to the religious wars of the past, fought out with renewed intensity and high-tech weapons far surpassing the swords and spears of the Middle Ages a person who could turn our attention to global religious and cultural issues is truly a scholar that we must pay attention to. It is with great honor that all of us now welcome Dr. Philip Jenkins.
And some introductions are very, very hard to follow. And um, some, uh, some roles, like uh, winding up a conference like this, which began with Roger Scruton and proceeded, um, very difficult uh, task to do. So um, all I can ask is um, bear with me, please. I'm, um, I'm aware that the uh, people who are uh, remaining um, are the, the few, the proud, the audience. I'm very pleased to uh, have you here. Um, I don't want to uh, be offensive to our very, uh, very generous hosts uh, here, but I do have a couple of uh, suggestions based on some things we've heard, possibly for the presentation of conferences on this theme. You notice that this is uh, faith and the challenges of secularism. Well, I think uh, we've heard that perhaps we should be calling this uh, secularism and the challenge of faith. Um, possibly, in fact, we need a more creative visual. Uh, possibly in terms of secularism, we could imagine the spotted owl. <laughs> For faith, we could imagine the new governor of California, <laughs> something to represent the strength versus an endangered species. <laughs> I also perhaps want to suggest that we need one extra letter, which is not faith, but faiths, in other words, plural. I want to suggest that the uh, difference we are dealing with is not necessarily between faith and secularism, but between two different types of faith, two different attitudes to uh, faith. I would entirely agree with everything Dr. Giulio said about um, America being you know, a land where, um, where faith continues as a very strong factor. Um, in fact, uh, sometimes I like to think of as an illustration a secular political movement in, um, in American history. Think hard. They're hard to find. There aren't many. What do you want as a secular movement? Abolitionism? The progressive era? That great upsurge of Baptist revivalism we call the civil rights movement? What do you mean? What is a secular political movement in American history? They're rather hard to find, however, uh, that view may not emerge from many, uh, many textbooks. In terms of uh, surveys of uh, attitudes, you get some very interesting conflicts right now. You get uh, Africa over here, as, as it's described by one of its leading theologians, notoriously religious. On this side, you get Europe, notoriously secular, and um, America floating somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean as halfway between European and African attitudes, if you like, the, um, the middle ground. The importance of faith is incontestable. But I would suggest that where you see the issue of secularism is within some of those faith attitudes. The difference is not faith versus secularism as by what authority does faith act and operate? Does faith uh, operate according to some kind of revelation, scriptural authority, some kind of um, 
absolute traditional authority, or does it represent a conformity to the best standards of the secular world? And that, I think, is where you see a great many secular, secularist attitudes is within religious organizations. And uh, I've been very struck by this recently. Um, I don't know how many of you have been following the uh, conflicts within the Episcopal Church and the global Anglican communion over sexual preference. You can interpret these uh, debates in many different ways, but I would suggest that these are conflicts which many different churches, many different faith communities are going to have to deal with. Globalization has arrived full force, and it's arrived in a rather different way from how people expected. Um, what happened briefly is that um, in Great Britain and in the United States, the, uh, uh, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church, decided the time was right to um, ordain non-celibate homosexual clergy and bishops, and uh, much to the amazement and horror of those church leaders, they heard a, a, a rather loud scream of outrage coming from the global south. And the question then was obviously, who are these people to make this objection? And then they looked at the numbers. And then they looked at the numbers in the Anglican, parenthesis, English church. And so the U.S. Episcopal Church had two and a half million members, tops. The Church of England had 25 million notional members, of whom 800,000 had any vague idea of where a church was or what might be inside it. <laughs> and the Anglican mainstream was the Church of Nigeria, with its 18 million members, up from 5 million in 1970, followed closely by the Church of Uganda and some other churches. Um, led by people like the Anglican primate of Nigeria, uh, Archbishop Peter Akinola. And both sides in this debate representing faith traditions, clearly representing faith and religion, but representing very different attitudes to the basis of authority. For the global north, it is perfectly acceptable, desirable to say that um, the new attitudes to sexuality and sexual preference represent what Thurgood Marshall described in a slightly different context as the maturing standards of decency that characterize an evolving democracy. In other words, secular standards have changed. The church must follow this. This is um, where ethics are going. We must follow. For the global south, however... Traditional authority, scriptural authority, matters. And I'm going to suggest in a moment that the mainstream view in global Christianity is now very much that of the global south. Um, in, in talking about this, I'd like to adapt a, um, a phrase from that, that great Jewish Anglican or Anglican Jew, Benjamin Disraeli, um, who talked about the two nations, and I'd just like to adapt his phrase a little bit and uh, change it to two Christianities. There are two Christianities between whom there is no intercourse and no sympathy, who are as ignorant of each other's habits, thoughts, and feelings as if they were dwelling, uh, dwellers in different zones or inhabitants of different planets, the rich and the poor. 
Well, maybe we're not quite there yet, but let me uh, just give you some of the figures that this is uh, based on. Um, if you look at religion worldwide, you see that religion based on um, scriptural, traditional religion is very much in the ascendant. Um, today, well, let, let me give you some um, figures here. What, what has happened to, uh, uh, to Christianity, for example? Christianity has very much moved to the global south, the continents of Africa, Asia, Latin America. Um, some of the figures are astonishing. I, I'm fascinated by the figures for Africa itself. In uh, 1900, Africa had 10 million Christians, representing about 10% of the continent's population. Today, there are 360 million Christians, representing just under half the continent's population. That is, by the way, the greatest religious shift in human history. No exception. Um, in, in numerical terms. Over the next 25 years, Latin America and um, Africa will be battling it out for which is the most Christian continent, but there's absolutely no question that in the long run, Africa wins, and that Christianity by the middle of the century almost certainly will be a religion of Africa and the African diaspora, that diaspora in Brazil, in the Caribbean, and in the African-American communities of the United States. A hundred years ago, Hilaire Belloc said something which was stupid but understandable, which is uh, Europe is the faith and the faith is Europe. Well, probably in 50 years, somebody will make the equally inaccurate but understandable comment, Africa is the faith and the faith is Africa. This great religion that began in the Near East and North Africa is going home. And it's going home in our, um, in our lifetime. Um, I, I, I've tried to project what the, uh, the nations will be with the largest uh, Christian populations in 40 or 50 years. And you might be interested in uh, some of the uh, results. Um, what are the leading nations? The United States should still be number one. Not in any particular order. What are the others? Uh, Brazil, Mexico, Nigeria, the Congo, Ethiopia, the Philippines, possibly, probably China. What are the countries I did not mention? Germany, Britain, France, Spain. Do you remember that old Europe phrase, that old, uh, old Christendom phrase, uh, phrase? Christianity is growing very rapidly in the, um, in the global south, as is, of course, Islam. But the kinds of religion that are growing very rapidly um, represent a particular kind of religion, a traditional, scriptural-based kind, of, uh, kind of religion. Um, and if uh, the name of Pope John Paul uh, was mentioned um, a moment ago, I think you see there a, a great example of the north-south culture clash, very similar to what happened within the, uh, the Anglican Communion recently. Um, for many Americans and Europeans, most of Pope John Paul's statements are put there as deliberate provocations or temptations to rage. Um, it is incomprehensible that uh, this man is so out of touch with the, the whole Catholic Church as it exists in all corners of the world, from Boston to San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> Presently, Three quarters, excuse me, 
Two-thirds of the world's Catholics live in the three southern continents of Africa, Asia, Latin America. By 2025, that figure will be three-quarters. However, if you want to understand that figure, you also have to add in the people of southern heritage who live in the northern continents. That is, um, well, to, to give you an example, by uh, 2050, the U.S. Census Bureau predicts that of the population of the U.S., one-third of the population will be either Latino or Asian in origin, and the great majority of those will have Christian roots. In other words, it looks very much like, the, uh, like Pope John Paul and his uh, very incomprehensible policies look like they've been playing the game of the 21st century for quite some time now, however incomprehensible that, um, that may appear. Southern Christianity, clearly to generalize about that would be, uh, would be very difficult, but uh, I, I want to draw on a number of themes which I think help us understand the attitude to, to politics, to faith and secularism as they exist in much of the, uh, the global south. Um, a number of things. Firstly, in many of the countries that are going to be the most important uh, Christian countries in years to come, there is no tradition of the separation of church and state. Whether it ever existed in the United States, we can debate, but it, is, it simply did not in countries like Great Britain, ask the Queen of England, the head of the Church of England and the English state, in countries like Spain or Portugal, it seems very natural, therefore, for church and state to be, uh, be united. Um, in fact, in many uh, Catholic cultures of the global south, there's a strong tradition of the idea of uh, integralism, the idea that uh, church and state should largely be united, often with a very strong kind of clerical religious uh, element. If, um, if that idea seems uh, bizarre or outré, it's interesting that it seems to have uh, flourished on both the left and the right. What did liberation theology want? Liberation theology clearly wanted a restructuring under the benevolent advice of um, progressive clerics, a very integralist kind of, uh, kind of attitude. There is an absolute distrust in many southern societies of the secular state. Don't forget, in order to talk about secularism, you have to have some kind of faith in the secular state and the secular order. Ask an Iraqi what they think of the traditions of the secular state or remarks like, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. <laughs> Look at Archbishop Akinola in Nigeria when he is presented with arguments from Great Britain or the United States about the virtues of the secular state. Look at the society he grew up in where for... In the uh, late 1960s, uh, Nigeria had a civil war which killed probably between one and two million people. Uh, for most of the last 30 years, Nigeria was under a regime, a series of regimes, which gave rise to the word kleptocracy, government by theft. In other words, if you want um, a refuge from society, you find it in religion and the church. Religion and the church or the mosque are where you find honest, decent, helpful government. That does not mean that all the people in those religious organizations are saints. But compared to the failures 
of those secular states. They certainly seem to be. Um, Just to give you you what might be a very controversial example, if you want to understand why groups like Hamas uh, flourish in Palestine and flourish among the um, the, um, Arab peoples, um, they very often are the ones who are providing those basic services of health, welfare, education, poor relief, that no one expects to get from a state and certainly not from a secular organization. It is in the religious context that you expect to be free from the pervasive corruption, which is the characteristic of of secularism. Um, The the idea of uh, faith-based organization, faith-based social service, um, why bother to say it? If it's a social service, of course it's faith-based. How could it be anything else? The government couldn't do that. People do not join Hamas because they have an urge to kill. They join Hamas because that is the only way of dealing with poverty. Um, what happens after that, we, we, we can discuss and we can argue, but I'm just saying in order to, um, to understand this. Not surprisingly, across the global south, one of the most popular biblical texts for both Protestants and Catholics, is the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation in the United States tends to get associated with, uh, you know, harebrained apocalyptic with ideas of of cult compounds. If somebody sits next to you and begins to explain the book of Revelation, you uh, adopt the attitude that you would with large dogs. You don't make eye contact. You (laughs) don't show fear. And you back away slowly. In the global south, what is the book of Revelation about? The book of Revelation is a statement that the state is under demonic power, which has its seat in cities. So far, it's an extremely accurate political science textbook. (laughs) It uses a rich, attractive symbolism but promises that for all the evils of secular society, God will prevail. It's a very interesting, instructive text. And as I said, liberation theologians read it, and very often they they will speak in terms of, we must be free of these demons of consumerism, racism, poverty. The book of Revelation is long overdue for a rereading in our own culture from a somewhat different perspective. Paganism is still a living reality in many countries of Africa and uh, and Asia. That puts a very different kind of context in the writings of um, church leaders confronting what they regard as the paganism of the West. When they speak in terms of the paganism of America, it is not just a colorful form of abuse. They know paganism. For example, um, Archbishop Akinola, uh, if you read his recent uh, writings, they're very interesting from this point of view. He talks about the bishops who did not go along with the Episcopal Church's decisions on sexuality as those honorable men who refused to bow the knee to Baal. Well, of course, for us, that's, that's a metaphor. A Nigerian or Ugandan has seen people, in their view, bow the knee to Baal. So there's a power there which we have to um, understand. 
The other thing which perhaps we, um, we need to appreciate, and this is in many ways an alarming thing, much northern religion, by which I mean northern hemisphere, has more in common with northern secularism than with southern religion. And um, what um, I mean by that, for example, is, uh, let's take a classic example of um, a statement that I believe was completely misunderstood. In 2000, Pope John Paul issued a statement called uh, uh, Dominus Jesus, um, which was very controversial um, in the West because it asserted that Christianity was... um, had a monopoly, in a sense, of uh, the the way to God, the way to truth. It was taken as being a rejection of ecumenism. For most of the church, for most of the world, for the two-thirds world, it was seen as being timely and necessary in regulating relationships with other religions, an issue which does not arise particularly in the United States when the issue is simply one of fairly easy coexistence, but is a life-and-death issue in a society like Nigeria or Indonesia or Pakistan or Sudan, where religious violence, civil war, persecution, and a word we haven't heard much in America recently, martyrdom, are very real possibilities. Please remember, we live now in the great age of Christian martyrdom. Now. Um, when, a, when an African cleric looks at uh, debates over sexuality in the United States or in uh, Britain, the number one priority has to be not, how can I offend the readers of the New York Times today? <laughs> but rather, if this decision is accepted, what does that mean for my people living adjacent to Muslims? Muslims will immediately say this means that Christianity is part of the West, that Christianity is part of this Western culture, this Western decadence. I sometimes argue that one of the great recruiting tools for Islam in Africa especially is Hollywood. And I'm very serious because they put out a message of this is the West, this is Christianity. Is this how you want your children or your grandchildren to end up? So um, I I would suggest that in in many ways there are some guiding rules which make African churches, especially Asian churches, very different from those of the global north, and that these differences are extremely important because this is where the numbers are. Let me give you a figure which I rather like. Think of a Catholic. Well, last year there were more Catholic baptisms in the Philippines than in France, Spain, Italy, and Poland combined. Last year, there were more Catholic baptisms in the Congo than in either France or Spain or Italy or Poland. By the way, a lot of those um, baptisms were of adult converts, uh, which is always taken as a sign of very rapid uh, growth. In the global south, uh, if you want to look at the issue of uh, faith and uh, secularism, faith really is winning on a lot of, um, a lot of counts. Um, in the Global South, clergy, and especially bishops and primates, have become associated with 
human rights and democratization it, in a way which is incomprehensible if we think of the, uh, the northern stereotype of southern Christianity. You know, for, for many of us, I think, um, the notion of southern Christianity is still something associated with missionaries who are bad, read the Poisonwood Bible. We came from Bethlehem, Georgia, bearing Betty Crocker cake mix into the jungle. Uh, a long, long time ago, Christianity became very much an autonomous African religion, Asian religion, for which people were prepared to die. The more they are prepared to die, the more that that church has roots in blood, which it does in the Congo and in Uganda. You know, it's... Um, Lest anyone think that I'm presenting a picture of some kind of triumphalism here, let me tell you a story which uh, might be very kind of uncomfortable or should be uncomfortable for anyone interested in this from a Christian perspective, which is the story of uh, um, Rwanda. I've been amused in the last two days to hear so many references to the argument that, well, unless you have secularism, you will have all this destruction from religious wars. Not that religious wars are in any sense an amusing phenomenon, but let's put them in context. All the religious wars in history fall into such pallid comparison with the anti-religious wars of regimes like the Nazis and the communists and, um, and the Chinese communists. By the way, let me give you a, a thought which should be enough to make arouse rage, in my lifetime, I was born in 1952, in my lifetime, probably a majority of the scriptures of the Buddhist religion have been destroyed, never to be, in a way they cannot be recovered by the Chinese in Tibet. A majority. If you want to talk about persecution in the world, let me tell you the story about um, Rwanda. In the early 1990s, there was a savage genocide in, um, in Rwanda. Uh, tragically, the genocide affected the churches. Many of the people within the churches used the genocide as an excuse to kill members of the opposite tribe within their churches. Bishops ordered priests and nuns killed. Clearly, this was not a religious-inspired war, religious-inspired genocide. If you're one of the targeted people in this largely Christian society, where could you go for help? If you went to a church, you knew you would be dead very shortly. Ah, if you're a Christian, though, you could flee to the Muslims, because as the Muslims said, our God does not pay attention to race or ethnicity. I always like that as an example of uh, something which is probably not a religious war, but where people failed in religion, and if they'd acted more religiously and acted more like the Muslims did, then there would have been far less carnage. Did I mention that um, very large numbers of Rwandans had converted to Islam in the last 10 years? Because they had a very good um, example. I talked about the South and the North. Uh, clearly, the South is coming North in the form of, um, in the form of immigration. Uh, there are a great many Southern uh, missionaries in the North these days. 
Um, we can talk a little bit later about this. There are you know, Nigerian and Ugandan missionaries in England. Uh, there are missionaries uh, all over Europe. Uh, the ones who are in England regard themselves as having the most difficult uh, situation because secularism is so far advanced there that there is no interest at all in talking about God in any way. What missionaries are always told is when you knock on a door, for heaven's sake, do not mention God. Admire their pets. That will get you in the door. Then gradually you can raise the, uh, the subject. There's an obvious question um, in all this. As society develops, will it be that southern churches will become more like churches in the West today? That as societies become uh, more developed, more of an emphasis on individualism, more prosperity. Um, you know, it, it, it's again, it's a very damning kind of picture of religion. When you people grow up, then you'll realize what religion's all about. It's, it's a very kind of condescending uh, view. Um, I suggest not um, for this reason. Phenomenon that uh, sociologists are very familiar with is what's called a sect church cycle, um, which happens in any religion based on scriptures and happens um, over time. Sects are formed, small, fiery uh, groups based on adult conversion, very firmly committed to traditional scriptural authority. Um, over time, they, they become less fiery, uh, more harmonized with the general society, and they tend to guide themselves more by secular standards. But... In turn, churches spawn sects. As people read the scriptures of a particular religion, as they look back to the early ages, they try and recapture that early charisma, that early power. It's a cycle that has happened for 2,000 years in Christianity, and it will happen indefinitely as long as the uh, religions exist. Um, and it will happen within African religions and, um, and Southern religions. Um, in other words, I would suggest to you that uh, the conflict we should be looking at is not between faith and secularism. There's no question that faith is very strong in the United States. But faith based on what? And I suggest to you that we may be seeing a rising tide of really a a very traditional um, kind, of, uh, kind of faith, which rejects that secular authority as deeply suspect and aims to liberate from what uh, Chesterton once described as, uh, what was it, the, uh, the intolerable slavery of being a child of one's own time. So um, I think the, um, the battle will continue, but if you, look at the, um, if you look at the numbers, the faith and the, and the faiths have, um, have a great deal of potential. So as I said, think of secularism, think of the spotted owl. Thank you. this time we're going to take a few questions from the floor and I believe we should have some microphones yes here um, oh, I'm Steve Tallis with the Madison program 
Uh, was I supposed to be? Oh, I'm supposed to get, use one of these. Okay. Um, I have a question that I think is mainly for John, but it may be for Professor Jenkins as well. Um, when people give the story about uh, rising religiosity, sort of rising respect for religiosity based on additional social science and other kinds of science, usually the story is um, this is really bad for the left. This is really bad for Democrats, right? They have to wake up and realize what's going on or else they're going to get uh, bowled over by these increasingly um, uh, religious, um, not just white evangelicals, but also um, Mexican-American and, uh, and black uh, figures, especially as the leadership within those groups changes, especially black and Hispanic leadership gets challenged by religious authorities. What I would ask you to, um, and I think certainly on issues like abortion and stem cell research and, and a broad range of issues beyond that, that's probably true. I would ask you to um, think about the other side. That is on, as these changes go on, um, how does it affect uh, parties of the right, not just the United States, but maybe other places, but I'm sure John will mainly want to talk about the United States. How does a conservative or Republican party deal with a group of people who also have this, um, this mission for social justice? How does that affect issues like taxes, welfare policy, health care, death penalty? That is, um, when you think about this, how does it affect both parties of the right and parties of the left? And maybe this may have an international dimension for Professor Jenkins as well. Well, I, I think the first thing to observe, at least the first thing I would observe, is that uh, what's striking about the groups that have been mobilized into the uh, public square over the past 15 or 20 years in particular, I'm, going, I'm talking now about groups, uh, uh, ones largely in urban communities. I'm talking about where is Dr. Catherine uh, Wilson uh, sitting down front here, uh, about the incredible uh, growth uh, in the United States of the of uh, Latino community serving ministries of diverse kinds, uh, Catholic, quasi-Catholic, were Catholic, now no longer Catholic, and others. Um, and these groups uh, are very much, uh, they differ in all sorts of ways. And it's not clear um, where they're, uh, in the case of the Latinos, I think in particular, it's not yet clear how uh, that will break down in partisan terms over the next 15 to 20 years. But what is clear is that they share a commitment to social justice uh, without, in many cases, abandoning a traditional sort of orthodox conservative belief in sort of spiritual transformation, and which is what makes so interesting to me the urban-suburban uh, partnerships where you have sort of traditionally uh, the older generations of white evangelical churches able to suddenly find partners uh, in urban uh, community-serving uh, outreach ministries and so forth. Now, I think in terms of the politics of this, I think the smart people uh, in the Democratic uh, Party, and I can name them uh, here today, um, uh, there's me, um, uh, Senator Lee, no, I, I stopped there. Uh, but there, the people in the Democratic Party, I think, understand that there is uh, the Democratic Party being true to itself as a party that cares about, you know, average men, women, and children, and how they can leave, lead um, productive um, and peaceful, if not uniformly prosperous lives, I mean, the, the essence of, 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 of sort of democratic public philosophy, that it's, it's insane, right, not to reach out, to mobilize, because you're also seeing a lot of 
sort of the youth vote, such as it is, the potential there, the latent potential there, is really, you know, because kids are motivated in this country without regard to demographic description or socioeconomic status, they are being attracted to religion at this point, so far as we can tell, and the data are far from, you know, perfect, uh, by religion's civic as much or more than by its spiritual significance, right? These young folks, 18 to 24 year old and so forth, voted historically low rates, but they volunteer at historically high rates, and they're doing a lot of that volunteering disproportionately in and around religious organizations of all sorts. So uh, I think the Democratic Party is, has been pretty uh, smart about this. I think the party that's in greater risk or greater danger here, frankly, is the Republican Party. Uh, because it remains committed, really, uh, they need to read uh, Professor Wolf's book, uh, because I think their notion of their base commitment, their base is still there, but it's shifted and changing. And the demographic change and the intergenerational change is one that they need to pay a lot of attention to, uh, because I think that base, uh, the younger folks in that base, are a lot more like okay, the traditional democratic base in terms of the social justice commitments in the religious uh, communities uh, than not. So. Uh, just a very quick uh, comment on that. Um, partly because of the what you might call the secularist myth, um, th th there is still a widespread impression that um, people who are theologically, religiously conservative must be politically reactionary. And uh, clearly that is not the case in the United States or, um, or globally. Um, you, you know, one thing we can um, talk about later, uh, some of these uh, very rapidly uh, growing churches in the, um, in the global south, for example, um, and some of the most visible uh, church leaders have been very active in issues like the um, abolition of global debt, um, were very active um, against the uh, U.S. war on Iraq, um, for example. And uh, one of the f lasting, uh, very, very important phenomenon, um, the new global Christianity, the new Southern Christianity, is a woman's movement or it's nothing. Um, and in other words, what you're seeing is movements that um, especially appeal to, um, to women and are quite important in transforming women's roles within those, um, within those societies. And so we're seeing uh, very often political transformations which we might associate with conservative religion but liberal <coughs> political causes, um, which is not a million miles from what uh, Dr. Yuri was talking about within the United States. Next question. We'll, we'll kind of go from this side to this side. So let's get this person in the middle, then we'll go here and come back over here. Uh, yes, my name's Owen Leach, and I'm just a resident of Princeton. Um, I am stunned by what you gentlemen have said this afternoon, considering myself a rather avid consumer of American news media. And I wonder if you have a theory as to why or how this information you've presented today has been so su suppressed. Uh, demonic possession is... <laughs> Next question. Now, that is not empirically observable, and I want to go, go on record here as saying that that is not an empirical observation, but... Um, I, I know. I, I guess I, I find it hard, and I'll be, be uh, mercifully, let's say, very as little as, little as possible. I, I find, you know, the ch chapter 10 of my American government textbook comes to mind as an answer, and, and, and sort of the way in which 
uh, the media have organized themselves to cover various sort of public policy and domestic policy, social policy domains in this country, right, and, and some of the pathologies in that that are, you know, not about hostility to religion or anything, but just so the way in which the, the mass media have become structured, especially over the past 15, 20 years. But the part of my brain that wants to answer that question, or maybe the part officially, is the, is the eight months in the White House, where, for example, um, I would tell uh, when um, the president announced the faith initiative, um, uh, what he announced was a plan to do essentially to implement and expand, slump slightly, frankly, what President Clinton had done, i.e. Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton's uh, husband, uh, had done in 96 to 2000 with four different bills that, you know, uh, attempted to ensure uh, equal treatment for faith-based nonprofit organizations that wanted to administer social welfare services with, with public grants. And the media were absolutely, almost to an individual, at least one reporter for the AP, uh, who kept writing it as if it was a headline story, and she had broken news that, aha, this was not a new idea where this had been done before, but they immediately fell into church-state. It's a, it's a church-state, separation of church and state, separation of church and state, separation of church and state. When, in fact, you know, where were they over the past four years? Well, the reason was they saw a lot of religious people this time around. In a sense, if, if the president had done it in a stealth way, you know, which is not his style exactly, he's doing things, um, he, you know, it would have, I think, been quite different. But when they woke up, it was like they had a, a revelation, uh, pun intended, uh, that, you know, this had been on the books and, you know, someone had snuck it past them mm -hmm. and uh, so forth. So, I mean, um, I don't know. Professor Jenkins probably has a much well, better... No, just two things. I uh, forget who, which sociologist said, uh, was it, uh, oh, no, 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 it was, uh, it was Niebuhr who said, uh, original sin is the only theological doctrine for which we have empirical verification. <laughs> um, I suspect the main thing is, you know, the, the old rule about if I hadn't uh, believed it, I wouldn't have seen it with my own eyes. In other words, you see what you tend to expect. Um, one of the great exceptions, and I want to pay full credit to, uh, to him, I don't know if you've been following what uh, Nicholas Kristof has been writing in the New York Times in the last few months. It's been deeply impressive. Kristof's um, uh, uh, been commenting about um, the churches in Africa, and specifically, I'm about to use the M word again, by the way, missionaries in Africa. And he's been speaking so highly with such awe of what those people actually uh, do, and it's been, it's been very interesting. Um, and he said nothing that uh, need be a surprise to most people, but the fact it's in the New York Times is staggering. He is, a, you know, that's a brave man. Um, but pe people see what they want to see, I think is the short answer. And we all know what fundamentalists are. We've all seen Elma Gantry. Yes, this gentleman wrote the yellow tie. My name is Bill Bonner. I'm an attorney, and I've done a lot of um, First Amendment religious speech litigation. Um, one lesson that I know is that he who defines the terms of engagement or the debate leverages the outcome. And I've been very <clears throat> concerned as I've uh, advanced in my career that Christians have never really defined the debate. It's always been defined by the Supreme Court in the terms of separation of church and state, um, while the federal judges have anemically, um, rarely dealt with the other half of the First Amendment, the free exercise clause. Um, do you have any comments on how we can begin the process of participating or asserting the right to define the debate 
because once success has been reached in sanitizing the law of religion, then the ultimate political questions are, why obey when I can get away with it? Or why care when it doesn't advance my personal interests? Isn't the real issue the separation of law and religion? And hasn't religion contributed two major things? It's the great mediator, which negates the necessity of applying the sanctions of the law because religion dictates far more human conduct than the criminal code. And, and also, isn't, um, aren't debates like um, Roy Moore's and the Ten Commandments more concerned with the fact that religion in this country has so defined the individual in our terms as a divine product, but so defined that individuals being so important that we in fact have the legal system that we have today and other countries don't? Uh, well, I, I would say just, you know, in terms of the, the, the part of your comment uh, regarding how is it that um, people of, of faith who are interested in entering into the public square and being out there uh, in terms of speech rights and other things, how it can set the terms of, of the discourse in a way that doesn't automatically bias it, as it were, against them, either in terms of public law or other uh, considerations. I think the answer is uh, to speak the truth and the facts and the facts are quite liberating here. And the facts that, in particular, it's very interesting, uh, as always, listening in uh, Professor Jenkins uh, about uh, in other parts of the world, you know, to say it's a faith-based social service is, is redundancy. Of course, it's faith-based. That fact in the United States is still the single, it's, it's much better known today than it was five years ago, and everybody heard the term faith-based. Uh, that much was accomplished. But <clears throat> the fact of the matter is, <clears throat> especially for those whose claim to fame is we're concerned about social welfare and egalitarian civic results, for folks who are coming from there, and I largely view myself as a, as a person coming from, from there myself politically and, and uh, socially, uh, why then have we in parts of north-central Philadelphia and south-central Los Angeles let entire neighborhoods undergo 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of public and private disinvestment because we have refused to invest in the only indigenous owned, run, operated organizations that do provide, without much help at all, social services to their own needy neighbors, to low-income children, youth, and families, i.e., these faith-based organizations, these churches, synagogues, mosques, religious congregations, little tiny blessing station ministries, and so on. Why have we made it impossible for these, own neighbor for these neighborhoods to reassert control over their own fate, as it were, with respect to economic redevelopment? The answer is that the dominant institutions, public and private, have worked around, have treated as radioactive these communities of faith. That fact is the single most damning fact, because when everyone looks, and then when the data get out there from Professor Kanan and, and from others, you know, from Kanan at Penn and others, showing that, uh, I'll give you just one quick example. I had a congressman who was uh, early on, uh, when I was in the White House, was giving speech after speech about how, you know, what we really need to do is eradicate, was the word he used, eradicate uh, religious influences in the public square. And, you know, we don't need for social services, but there is no need for them because, and at one point, um, I was being uh, uncharacteristically generous, um, off camera, as it were, I said to him, hey, 
when I go out there, when it's my turn, I'm going to point out the fact that a third of all daycare centers in this country today are administered by and through religious organizations. And I checked, in your district, it's closer to half. Now, that's an interesting fact. He didn't use the word eradicate again. Um, uh, he thought there should be public-private partnerships that encouraged by interfaith and ecumenical, you know, he softened his position. And I think that the facts here are, are liberating, but Professor Jenkins will know better. No, I'm going to leave that. To okay. Okay. Yes. My name is uh, Russ Neely, and uh, I've been a part-time lecturer in the politics department uh, since the late uh, 1980s. Uh, more recently, I've also been a uh, faculty advisor at uh, one of the uh, one of Princeton's uh, undergraduate colleges, and it seems to me uh, that over the last uh, several years, there's been s uh, something of a mini uh, revival uh, of religiosity among uh, students at Princeton. And I was wondering if uh, any of the panelists, uh, John DeUlio or Byron Johnson, have any uh, data on this. It seems that. Uh, the mini-revival has, uh, too, like uh, the revival uh, or the, the, the growth of Christianity in the South, taken a distinctly uh, orthodox, uh, very uh, definitely not uh, in the, the older uh, progressive uh, tradition of the early uh, uh, 20th century. Well, I have heard this to be the case, and uh, I'm certainly looking forward to doing some recon reconnaissance in the next few days. Uh, on campus to, to see if this is true. Is your impression of the University of Pennsylvania, are the schools similar to my impression here at Princeton? Uh, has there been something of a mini-revival at other schools, or is Princeton unique in this regard? Or? I, I think that John can answer this one too, but I will say that there is, based on some pilot uh, survey data that we did at Penn, there's a surprising level of interest in spirituality among the students that I think most people wouldn't suspect that you would find at a place like a pen. And I think that it's just an area that we've not really explored very much, but I think that it's there. I think that students are uh, spiritual people and they want to ask spiritual questions. It's, it's just something that we haven't looked into too much. I just had uh, two things to say. The, um, the impression I have is that this is very, very common um, around the country, but the only uh, question I have is whether it represents a revival of interest or something that was there all along but was not so openly expressed because there was such a kind of cultural, oh, denigration in a sense of, um, of this. Uh, there's one interesting phenomenon which you see in many large state universities which is I can go, uh, you will go along to a evangelical or Pentecostal Christian society, and most of the people will be Asian-American, while the Buddhists are all white. <laughs> True story. Uh, Russ, I, I, um, I, I, I think there are good, I think uh, Byron has referenced some of the, the surveys. I don't know, we have really good big-end surveys. The Templeton Foundation, I know, Arthur Schwartz, uh, Dr. Arthur Schwartz of Templeton Foundation is, is beginning launching a study that may tell us a lot more about that in the years ahead. But I think one of the interesting things that's happening, and this is uh, uh, largely in the spirit of the plural of anecdotes data, but uh, you see on many campuses now, I certainly saw it when I was here even uh, back in the roaring 90s, uh, still on this campus, and I see it at Penn as well. As you get larger numbers or relatively larger numbers of students coming in to university life, uh, including in top 50 uh, places, um, who are coming in from, you know, uh, from humbler beginnings and backgrounds, from, from relatively poorer families. 
The ethos, I think, even when we went to college back in the 60s and 70s and so forth, was kind of no matter where you came from, you know, you left your baggage, especially if there was religious baggage, you, you left it at the door, you didn't talk about it much. But now especially, I see it among African-American uh, students uh, who have a, from Pentecostal traditions, Latino uh, students uh, in particular, uh, Korean uh, students uh, at Penn, uh, the, the, the society at Penn, uh, who are coming in and saying, you know, they're not leaving their racial or their ethnic or their religious identities at the gate. Um, I sort of think of them uh, as modern-day versions of William F. Buckley, Jr. You know, here was this rich Catholic who went to Yale but didn't know uh, that it wasn't Fordham, right? Um, uh, and and uh, af after four years left and was shocked, shocked to see that, you know, there was secularization going on uh, at Yale. Uh, so it, it was, uh, you know, I, I, in some funny ways, I think the demographics here, uh, changes, are going to uh, tell, tell that tale over the next 15 to 20 years. And can I just add one thing? Um, Penn State... Uh, has just built um, one of the largest new buildings on a campus that is going through a huge building boom, and it now has the um, largest religious affairs center that's actually a chapel, but you can't call it a chapel, at any uh, state university. And that's what we built in the last five years. So, yeah. Next question. In the back. And I think that um, the challenge is not so much about money going to faith-based groups. It's about having more money in general to help people in a North Philadelphia community. I mean, I would welcome, I've worked in the secular sector for a long time doing redevelopment work. And it's not just about faith-based versus secular. It's about just having enough resources. I, I, I don't disagree with that comment. In fact, um, I think one of the, back to uh, Steve Tellis' question, one of the things that is a partisan divide is, whether you know an increase in faith-based organizations participating in social service delivery is a substitute or a supplement uh, for um, you know uh, resources going into low-income communities, uh, Democrats, capital D, uh, like me, generally believe uh, it's a supplement that we need to build on what we have. Whether we're talking about Medicaid, PD care services, or talking about youth and family services more generally, or you know you name it, housing rehab, and so on. Uh, I, I learned in Washington that that's not the view of of all people. We have a question on this side. The, the argument has been proposed that uh, the, the secular uh, taxing, uh, going, uh, tax base and money going into uh, faith-based organizations would be corrupting. So I'd like to ask you, John, whether or not it's your view that it would be better to maintain the tax base and the money that does go into social services and allow faith-based institutions to uh, have access to that money or whether it would actually be better to just reduce the taxes and allow people of faith to uh, have more money available to freely give uh, to their organizations. Uh, which do you think would be uh, the, the, uh, the better way of doing it, both from a moral standpoint and from an economic standpoint? Well, I, I think you really would want to, uh, at least my view, uh, is you do both. Um, would have been great if uh, part of the president's original plan was to give the 80 million Americans who don't itemize, you know, on their tax returns, uh, you know, greater charitable tax credit. Um, it could have uh, ended up uh, constituting a, a tens of billions of dollars increase in charitable giving through and with uh, faith-based organizations in particular. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that never really saw the light of day. It didn't happen. With regard to, you know, with government uh, shekels come government shackles, you know, those concerns. <laughs> 
Um, I, I believe that it's certainly a real concern, and I respect greatly um, people of different uh, religious and benevolent traditions and the leaders. My point has always been simply that uh, that's a determination that ought to be uh, left with people who are the leaders of particular faith and religious communities. Uh, and you'll get a diversity of views on that within any particular denominational or uh, faith community, uh, varying by race, ethnicity, urban, suburban. You get a range of views on that and concerns. And I believe it's the, you know, it's the, the Reverend Rivers and the Reverend Goods and the Pastor Cortezes and the Pastor Lilbachs, for that matter, who ought to make those determinations. The government ought to just take the position of neutrality uh, not treating religious nonprofits any differently, uh, keeping them under the same rules and regulations and protocols as all other nonprofits that want to participate in the grant-making system. We have a question in the far back on the right side. Uh, yes, I'm Eric Gregory. I'm a resident of Princeton, and I teach here as well. Um, I wanted to ask, I, I detected a tension between Dr. Jenkins and Dr. Diolio, or at least I hope I do, because I want to create a kind of debate. <laughs> <laughs> if not between the two of you, then with a theme that's been through this whole conference. So um, I also cheer the turn towards social justice and the common good within various religious communities in America. But a story could be told that this is just a function of the way in which liberal monism always turns every religious person in America into a liberal Protestant. We've done it with the Catholics, and, we've, and it's happening now with evangelicals and Pentecostals, that they're actually not theologically orthodox or heterodox. They're not theological, and everyone starts to talk like Paul Tillich. And this is what, you know, the language of spirituality and et cetera, et cetera. So that liberal Protestantism is the way religiosity is expressed in America, whether it's expressed by conservative Catholics, evangelicals, Pentecostals, et cetera. I think this picks up on one of Professor Jenkins' themes about northern religiosity. And I wonder whether or not, um, I, I actually don't think this is necessarily true, but I wanted to ask, one of the themes of this conference has been that the wars of religion figures as a boogeyman in the Rawlsian liberals. And yet the press release for uh, Philip Jenkins' book Mm -hmm. seems to provide me. grist for the mill, which I'm not saying he wrote, no. but it provides grist for the mill. Right. If the analysis is right, that religiosity in the South is apocalyptic, et cetera, et cetera, and not sort of polite, kind, and or liberal Protestantism as it is in America, no matter what strain of uh, theological background it comes from. Mm -hmm. Then should what... What answer should, I'm a critic of Rawlsian liberalism, but what answer should I give to Rawlsians who think that your book provides validation of all of the fears that motivate Rawlsian liberals for um, the challenge of faith to secularism? Okay. Can I? All right. Uh, taking those uh, questions in reverse order. Um, the first one is um, I did not write the, uh, the publicity uh, on it, and I would say that um, a, um, a Rawlsian should, uh, should read the book because what I'm, um, what I'm actually talking about, what I argue uh, uh, in the book, is that there is no reason why growing Christianity and growing Islam cannot and should not coexist perfectly well as they have done uh, for a great many years in, in most regions. Um, and what I focus on is one particular phenomenon which I think is provoking war um, and unrest, which is coming from uh, one particular aspect of Islam. Now, over the, uh, trust me, over the long span of Christian-Muslim relations, Christians have done horrible things, Muslims have done horrible things. This is not an argument. 
But what I'm saying that, uh, is that right at the moment, um, a particular Muslim movement, a particular kind of very puritanical traditionalism, which is armed with huge amounts of money, namely the kind of Wahhabism which is coming out of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, is um, pushing people in traditionally tolerant areas to, um, to intolerance, to create Sharia states, to drive out, um, very often to try and drive out of persecuted Christians. So in other words, I am predicting a kind of violence, but that violence is not a function of religiosity, apocalyptic religion. By the way, if you look at most apocalyptic religious movements through history, their view is always, dreadful things will happen to you. God will do this. I'm not going to do anything, but... And they very often tend to be pacifist or quietist. Um, so, in other words, um, if anyone suggested that um, I was arguing that uh, apocalypticism, fundamentalism were leading to this kind of uh, religious conflict, then I would say right away they had uh, done a wonderful job of reading the blurb and uh, not reading the book. <laughs> As to the, um, the second point, um, I'm reminded of uh, Garrison Keillor's remarks about uh, everyone in the Midwest is Lutheran, on the base of uh, Lutherans are Lutheran, Catholics are really Lutheran, and uh, atheists are Lutheran because the God they don't believe in is the Lutheran God. <laughs> and th there is that kind of um, idea of harmonization of, um, in terms of how people interpret it, and that was one of my disagreements with the, um, the, uh, the Alan Wolfe uh, book, which I, I also thought was just a superb book, but I do think he, um, he exaggerates uh, that. Um, and and um, a number of things. If you actually talk to people in these congregations, you just get a very different kind of message. You just get uh, people who really do care um, about doctrine, about um, orthodoxy. They're not intolerant or persecuting, but they care about these things. And um, I, I would also look at the, uh, the ethnic changes that are, um, that are happening. I think California... Catholics in California now have a Latino uh, majority. If you're not familiar with the Virgin of Guadalupe, who I see is in the prayer chapel of uh, Princeton Chapel, get used to her. You're going to be seeing her a very great deal over the next few years. Um, and maybe in the very long term, um, you will get some trends in, um, in that direction. But I think inevitably, people tend to see what they want to see. Remember that about if I hadn't believed it, I wouldn't have seen it with my own eyes. But I think there's a natural exaggeration. And by the way, where, where you actually see that, sorry to give a, um, a long answer. I don't know if anyone remembers something called the mainline churches. <laughs> and the idea is the mainline churches through the 20th century supposedly represented the mainline of American religion. Of course they didn't. They just grabbed hold of the uh, organization that allotted broadcasting time in the media and never gave it to anyone else. So you never heard another voice. Meanwhile, the fundamentalists and evangelicals and Pentecostals sulked in their tent, metaphorically, from 1925 to 1976. And then when they were rediscovered in 1976, everyone thought, ah, there's an evangelical revival. No, there wasn't. You just started seeing them for the first time. It's a really long answer. Sorry. Uh, the, the, um, uh, I would just, uh, the only thing I would uh, take issue with Professor Jenkins about is he said that uh, 
the the Rawlsian uh, folks ought to ought to read the book. They actually ought to come out from behind the original position, buy the book, um, <laughs> then read it, and then buy a second copy to make sure they got uh, got it right the first time, um, and then distribute it equally among all the different people. <laughs> that they are. Um, um, I, I, the um, I think Professor Jenkins said it said it eloquently. Said it best. It's a question of who you're hearing from. I, I'll tell you that. Um, on the ground where the rubber meets the road, uh, anyone who thinks that the people who are, for example, uh, really from the urban areas in particular, front lines of doing youth and community outreach or, say, prison ministry, uh, are people who are, have watered down or lukewarm or sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, really sort of, you know, secular liberal views, uh, uh, kind of disguised or nominally religious, uh, Really, I mean, up close and personal, uh, from the survey data, from the anecdotal evidence, from you know, observational ethnographic evidence, uh, these are people who are highly committed uh, to religious, very and often, often, very traditional uh, religious beliefs uh, and practices, and for whom uh, this uh, civic role really is an outgrowth uh, of this. Uh, we're going to have to await uh, Dr. Wilson's uh, book on Latino community serving ministries to prove that point for that community. But um, yes. I, I think it's quite, I mean, I, the media will have its, you know, four or five people who are the stand-ins for a particular point they want to make, you know, or a particular script that they want to run with about, you know, here's the far right-wing representative and here is the, you know, a uh, haloed person who understands that religion really is a problem, uh, just happens to come from a church and uh, wants to achieve these uh, civic goals with no religious overtones or anything. Uh, I think over the next 15 to 20 years, you're going to see people uh, asserting themselves more, and I think journalists are now beginning, frankly, to pay more attention. It's a more interesting reality, uh, frankly, than this stock reality that they've been peddling for all these many years. Professor George is going to close us out at this time, but let's hear it for these two wonderful presentations. You know, I've heard before the, uh, uh, the uh, analysis that uh, Professor Gregory shared with us that elite institutions like Princeton uh, take Catholics and evangelical students and turn them into liberal Protestants. But John will remember very well the rap against us when we were here as a couple of Catholics trying to turn all the liberal Protestants into evangelicals. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> well, I, I, it's an enormous uh, uh, pleasure to thank. Uh, Byron, uh, our chair, uh, and also Professor Philip Jenkins and Professor John DiUlio. Professor Jenkins' work I have admired from uh, afar for a very long time, and it's great, a great privilege to have him here at Princeton. And uh, you're going to be invited back very often. I just hope that you'll accept uh, our invitations. I can't wait to hear you again. And to my friend John DiUlio, what can I say? Uh, a faithful colleague for all those 13 years until he defected. Uh, for the University of Pennsylvania, but he remains with us as a, uh, a member of the Advisory Council of the uh, James Madison program. John was kind enough to uh, uh, put in a plug for my book, The, uh, the Clash of Orthodoxies, now available, by the way, in uh, softcover. <laughs> uh, what I want to say about that, uh, that book is that um, 
It has sold, uh, at last count, eight times as many copies as any other book I've ever written. Uh, and I can't figure that out, except I uh, finally uh, did figure that out. I couldn't figure it out. Now I figured it out. The only difference between that book and all the others is that book's got a foreword by John DiGiulio. <laughs> so uh, that accounts for the uh, sales difference. Uh, I, I want to thank the Providence Forum, our wonderful uh, co-sponsor, the Center for Human Values here at Princeton, uh, and the uh, Center for Religion, uh, Research on Religion and Urban Civil Society at the University of Pennsylvania. Boy, have we enjoyed uh, working uh, with our co-sponsors, not just the institutions, but the people who are those institutions. And we very much look forward uh, to working with you again, and I hope that you'll agree to work with, with, uh, with us again. I want to thank our speakers who have just been wonderful, those who have given papers, those who have given such terrific responses, uh, those who have served as uh, chairman. Uh, of the uh, various uh, panels that we've had. Uh, I also want to say a word of thanks to the wonderful students and recent graduates who have done so much of the legwork uh, for no credit uh, in any of the senses of credit we use in a university. Uh, and I want to uh, tell you uh, who they are. I'm bound to forget somebody, so please forgive me. But uh, I, I want uh, to ask everyone to join me in thanking Mark Tetto, Catherine Roberts, Michael Fergoso, Lindsey Grinnells, Michael Canelli, Blake Robinson, Chris White, Rabia Khan, uh, Kurt Saxton, Jurgen Reinhold, Evan Grego, uh, Grabos, Evan Baer, and uh, Rick Apple. These young people have uh, gone out of their way. And then there's my uh, my wonderful staff, uh, Professor Gregory and other members of the, uh, Professor Sigmund, other members of the Princeton community uh, know that uh, I have the best, the Madison program has the best staff in Princeton. Everybody uh, knows that, and it's one of those rare things that everybody knows that's actually true. Uh, <laughs> terrific all the way. They've worked so hard and done such a wonderful job. Uh, Reggie Cohen, Linda Kativa, Judy Rivkin, Jane Hale, and uh, Byron, my right arm, the absolutely indispensable and wonderful Shauna Sagru. So please, thank you. Now, this was really a conference about uh, uh, the, the conflict of worldviews, the clash of worldviews. Uh, this is a theme that uh, will, will figure in some other Madison program events. I'm going to mention uh, some Madison program events, some that have this theme, some that don't, uh, in, the, in the course of the year. But I want to take this opportunity to plug a comparatively new organization uh, on our campus, uh, uh, I, uh, an organization that's devoted to issues of worldview that's going to be sponsoring speakers throughout the year and into the future. I wish them every success because they're focused on these worldview uh, issues. It's called the Mana Christian uh, Fellowship, and uh, you should keep your eyes open for their advertisements. They're going to be bringing in some wonderful speakers to discuss the kinds of issues that we've been uh, discussing uh, here this weekend. So keep your eyes open. You'll, you'll see some interesting uh, lectures being sponsored by the Mana Christian Fellowship, of which I uh, have the pleasure of now being one of the faculty advisors. Also, I just happen to notice, so I'll, I'll mention it, that people who are interested in the kinds of issues we've been discussing here might be interested in Nancy Piercy's lecture, uh, which is in Wig Hall this evening at 7.30. There are ads all over the place. That's not a Madison program uh, event, but it'll, it'll be a very interesting lecture. She's a very interesting uh, person who writes about worldview issues, particularly pertaining to uh, religion. And uh, although you've been through a lot of lectures, if you're <laughs> just dying for one more, uh, it would be a terrific one. Now, after you've had a rest for a few months and you want to hear some more lectures, 
Uh, our next major public conference in the Madison program will be a conference on early American presidents, which is being spearheaded by our wonderful and extremely eminent presidential uh, scholar, Fred Greenstein. And the Early American Presidents Conference, which will be focused on George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, uh, who's that other guy, James Madison, <laughs> April 2nd and 3rd of 2003. And as I say, that'll be a public conference to which you are all invited. And then in the fall, I know everyone here will be interested in this because it's uh, on a very closely connected theme. In the fall, uh, and we'll, we'll be advertising the, uh, the dates and the specific participants, we're going to take the occasion of the 20th anniversary of the publication of Father Richard John Newhouse's book, The Naked Public Square, which played such an instrumental role uh, in reviving uh, discussion and redirecting discussion of church and state religion and public life in the United States. We're going to take the occasion for a 20-year retrospective. And among the scholars we're, uh, we're going to uh, have on that occasion will be Father Newhouse himself, of course, uh, and Alan Wolf, uh, whom Father Newhouse criticized uh, this morning and uh, who has been uh, invoked uh, in a more positive way by some of our other uh, discussants. And we're going to get together a terrific uh, lineup of people uh, for that conference, so keep your eyes open for that one uh, in the fall. And finally, let me just thank all of you uh, for coming and sharing this occasion with us for your wonderful questions, and uh, see you next time.